OSL is the leading distributor of radiotherapy patient positioning equipment and physics QA products for the UK and Ireland, supplying both the NHS and private sectors. We are currently running winter lunchtime on-site sessions discussing the superficial and ortho-voltage treatment portfolio that we distribute for WOMED, owned by Baybig. This comprehensive KV unit portfolio ranges from energies of 50 to 300 KV with excellent patient and staff safety features and we offer an incredible service and support package for your engineering team to ensure a smooth and efficient service for your patients. Please do get in touch if you require further information. And finally, as always, do not hesitate to discuss your product and service requirements with our friendly and knowledgeable account specialists as and when required. We are all from a radiotherapy background and we are more than happy to chat about the clinical benefits and the workflow of all of our products. Please go to our website at www.osl.uk.com or if you would like to speak to us, please call 01743 462 694. Hi, my name is Laura and I work at Convensys as a partnerships manager. Join us at the NHS Oncology Conference on the 6th of June 2023 in Manchester. We will open the debate on how the NHS is planning to lean on new models of delivery and innovation to help manage the current treatment backlogs and improve outcomes on a national scale. All tickets are free for the NHS to attend. To register for your free ticket, visit convensis.co.uk. And welcome to Rad Chat, the multi-award winning first therapeutic radiographer-led oncology podcast. Welcome to podcast number 80. My name's Joe McNamara and I'm joined by fellow host Namanjelka Anderson. Hi everyone. So a big thank you to our last guest, Mary Huckle, who discussed her experience of living with secondary cancer. If you haven't had a chance yet, please do go and take a listen. So we're pleased to introduce our guest today, Mariad, who will be discussing her role as a therapeutic radiographer and her PhD looking into motion management techniques for abdominal stereotactic radiotherapy. So hello, welcome. Hello, thank you for having me. Oh, an absolute pleasure. We've been very excited. Um, I know that we'd been on Twitter and you've very kindly done lots of promotional work about um, therapeutic radiography as a career. And we got lots of people messaging us going, you've got to get her on. She's amazing. So I'm so glad you could finally join us for the podcast. Um, So would you mind kind of sharing with us about yourself and your career to date? Yeah, no problem. Um, so yeah, I'm a therapeutic radiographer. I am currently working as a postgraduate researcher at the University of Manchester, and that basically just means that I'm a PhD student. Um, I also hold an honorary research radiographer post at the Christie Hospital. Um, so I'm able to kind of still keep up my competencies and my skills treating patients at the Christie on, on the MR Linux specifically. Um, and, you know, kind of keep that up while I'm doing my PhD studies. So yeah, that's currently what I'm up to at the moment. Um, I got here in a little bit of a windy way, um, as I think we all do. You know, you, you know, I didn't kind of see where it was all going at the time, but it's nice to be here now and kind of reflect back on it. But, you know, various roles working around the department, um, going through pre-treatment, going through the different uh, Linux and, you know, just kind of gaining all those skills and competencies. And um, yeah, at times feeling a bit kind of confused and a bit lost and not sure, you know, I had so much energy, but not really sure where to where to put it. Um, yeah, it took a few sideways moves <laughs> with kind of fixed term posts and stuff like that. Um, but it was my last post um, as Hepeta Baleri Pancreas Research and Development Radiographer at UCLH that really got me interested in implementing different um, 
kind of new research into the department and also into abdominal cancer. So that was really where it kind of became more crystallized to me. And then thankfully, towards the end of that um, fixed term post, I saw this PhD advertiser. Here I am in Manchester after many, many years in London. <laughs> what made you choose therapeutic radiography? Um, I fell into it. It may be quite similar to a lot of other people. Um, it wasn't my kind of initial plan when I was a teenager. Um, I definitely wanted to go into an allied health profession, but I kind of didn't know a lot about them. Um, and, you know, I went to a boarding school in Ireland for um, a lot of my um, secondary career. So um, kind of exposure to different careers was just not a thing. I went to a university open day and went to kind of all the other other allied health professions um, talks. And they were really interesting, but I saw um, radiotherapy and I was like, that sounds really interesting because it's got that technical scientific side, but also the patient care side. And I just felt like it was a really good mix for me. And I, to be fair, I'd never heard of it before. So I just thought that sounds really cool. Um, and then, yeah, I got onto a degree course in Liverpool and the, the rest is history. You know, since looking back on it, um, I've realized that, you know, my kind of family history of cancer, um, with my, my father dying when I was a teenager and my grandmother, um, kind of in hindsight, I'm like, yeah, that actually, it, it all makes sense that it worked out that way. So it's quite nice now to be able to kind of be able to support people when you, you know, you can imagine that it was your family member and, you, you know, it's really nice to be able to be a part of people's journeys in a kind of supportive and productive way. Had you always had an interest in research? Um, no. <laughs> No, I um, finished my degree and I did my um, my undergraduate dissertation and I quite enjoyed that actually. I quite enjoyed writing a big piece of work. Don't know why. Um, but I kind of finished my degree and I qualified and I was like, cool, I'm never studying again. <laughs> That's it. I'm just going to work until I retire. It's great. Um, and it actually didn't take me too long to start researching masters and <laughs> really was less than a year. Um, and yeah, I just initially did the um, distance learning Master of Science in Medical Physics through the Open University. Um, and I kind of did it because I wanted to learn more about physics. It wasn't my strongest subject in university. So um, I kind of wanted to take that knowledge further because I thought, you know, now I'm really, my, my name is on the line here when I deliver these treatments. I need to know even more about, you know, the machines and, you know, planning and everything. So I did that Master's did the dissertation again enjoyed that started to notice a trend um and it was only really really when i um started doing some audit work in the department that's the kind of the first step where i, I um kind of noticed that i had potential to change things myself um just using data so that was like my first taster i am um, i was in a head and neck specialist role at the time and um we saw that the pre-radiotherapy dental assessments were taking so inordinately long and they were causing really long delays to the patients starting their treatment and obviously they need to start treatment really soon and um, I you know did an audit collected data presented it to the dental hospital we revamped the service um, and I saw that you know using my numbers using my my data that I'd collected it, it was able to prove a strong enough case to make the change so that was kind of the first start and then it was um, in my most recent role before the PhD, uh, the hepatobiliary role, 
where I was working with um, researchers at UCL and looking to translate the research into um, the radiotherapy department. So I saw that it was like not just improving the things that we can see, but it's about thinking even bigger and kind of taking off NHS blinkers and thinking, what can we do if it was a dream scenario? And so it was kind of just the building blocks for me in that way. Do you mind if I just take you back? Obviously, you shared about your dad and your grandmother, so especially in teenage years, that's quite a lot to go through. Do you find that obviously progressing through maybe working in healthcare has helped you process what happened a bit better? Absolutely, yeah. I think I feel so much comfort now being um, a health professional and kind of knowing what's going on. I think at the time, I felt really, really kind of everything was just being told to me, and um, you know, we were just told these big words and this information and pet, um, you know, pet scanning and CT scanning and not knowing what any of it was um, and just feeling really like a significant loss of control. And I think I feel weirdly more in control now because I at least know what's going on. Um, and it did definitely help me process it. It was tough when I was training because it was about a year after my father passed when I started uh, the, the degree course and it was... <laughs> really tough um, and then it, it yeah it definitely got easier and I think I'm able to to look at things a lot more kind of matter-of-factly now and look at them in a more kind of medical sense um, and it kind of took that like real uh, you know emotional sting out of it yeah I suppose and quite a few people fall into radiotherapy um, as you said quite rightly but some people will have an experience of cancer in some way and that's their kind of connection Obviously, I don't want to prod too much, but what with obviously the trigger points of you going through as a first year, so 18, you know, 19, what kind of helped you get through the hard times when things were becoming triggering? Oh, it's a good question. I wasn't as um, evolved as I, as I am now. Um, I One of the things that I've kind of, as I look back on my life so far, I realise that I've always done is running. I'm not a professional. I'm not, you know, at the park run every Saturday, like first thing I'm, you know, I'm a fine day runner, um, but I like to keep it that way because it keeps it fun for me. Um, and I think that was really what it was in, you know, kind of just getting out and just you put on your trainers and there's nothing else. Um, and then paired with that and kind of to a similar extent is also music. Um, I play music, I play guitar and I also love listening to music. So uh, that definitely those two things were probably, I didn't know them at the time, but they were the things that got me through. And I still use them to this day, so must be working. <laughs> so obviously you talked a bit about your abdominal research and area of interest. Um, motion management, what is it and why do we need, why is it so important? So abdominal cancers like liver and pancreatic cancer are notoriously tricky to treat with radiotherapy. Um, they often present at an advanced stage due to non-specific symptoms. You know, for pancreatic cancer, it can be tiredness, some backache, weight loss. I mean, you know, it's it's really hard to pinpoint that um, at an early uh, disease stage. Um, they also, in particular, pancreatic cancer require a relatively high dose of radiation to actually kill the tumour. And thirdly, they're normally situated very close to critical organs at risk. Um, so normal tissue that we really don't want to um, 
provide excess radiotherapy dose to. Um, so if we think about the pancreas, it's really closely surrounded by the duodenum, which is a part of the small bowel. And this is really sensitive to radiation. It's one of the most sensitive structures in the abdomen. Um, and it's often abutting the area that we want to treat. So this limits the dose that we're able to give to the tumor um, safely. So add to that then that these abdominal organs move with respiration and often at differing um, degrees to each other, but also with digestion. So it's not just respiration. There are other processes that are going on um, that make the, the organs move in different degrees. And this motion can then make our image quality worse uh, because it's basically giving off um, what we call an image artifact, which um, makes it a lot trickier to see what we're what we're looking at because it um, makes the image blurry, basically. Uh, so that motion plus the poor image quality um, gives us this potential for uh, missing our target or overdosing our critical structures um, that are surrounding it. So with techniques like stereotactic um, radiotherapy, we can see we can deliver um, a steep dose gradient. And that means that we can give an, um, we can dose escalate. It's more precise, um, but that means that we actually have to have increased accuracy when positioning our patient. Uh, so income strategies to manage motion. Um, one thought is to stop it altogether using breath holds. So we literally get the patient to hold their breath every time we want to deliver the radiotherapy treatment. Uh, but that involves multiple breath holds just to deliver one treatment because the treatment can't go that quickly. So it means that we can do, you know, 20 to 30 breath holds for a treatment, which can be quite tiring for patients. And obviously we there are, you know, issues around making sure that the breath hold is in the same place each time. Um, and also it can be quite tricky for people uh, to actually hold their breath for 25 seconds or so. Um, it's quite a long time. Uh, we can also reduce the motion, um, not eliminate it altogether, but reduce it with abdominal compression. And these are quite commonly employed in radiotherapy departments, in my experience. So I think a lot of people have experience with them. Uh, they use the, uh, the arch device, which is, uh, goes around the patient and presses down with a plate and provides pressure. Or a belt device, which kind of um, is inflated like a blood pressure cuff. And they basically stop how much the abdomen or the tummy can move with breathing. Uh, the other option is that we can actually incorporate their motion into the treatment plan using uh, strategies like the internal target volume, the ITV, or using gating that we only treat um, on a specific phase of the patient's breathing, such as every time they breathe out. So that's similar to breath hold, except without all the kind of stress uh, for the patient in actually holding their breath. But the only issue with these motion management strategies is that they are effective. Each one of them is effective. A lot of them are quite expensive or complex to implement into a department. And there's no one ideal solution for all patients. For example, organs still move and breath hold. Um, so with digestion, and we've seen that on our images. And it's also not tolerable for all patients, as I said. And compression is not tolerable for all patients. And it can actually increase motion in some. So there's no one perfect solution. So in order to improve local control for these cancers, we need to reduce the uncertainties associated with the motion to deliver higher biologically effective doses to the target while sparing the normal tissue. In a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, in a nutshell. I, I would say as well in terms of um, a lot of people listening to that sound, oh, well, it sounds awfully complex to deliver radiotherapy. 
why do these patients even contemplate having radiotherapy? Why don't they have a surgical intervention instead? Um, sure. Uh, you know, surgery often sounds like the easy way out. Surgery is associated with sig- significant morbidity. I know for pancreas patients, the option for surgery is a, a Whipple's procedure, which some people might remember from episode one, season one of Grey's Anatomy. Um, that's where I learned about it first and I've been obsessed with it since. It's a pancreatic duodenectomy and it's actually removal of the pancreas and the duodenum, so that small bowel. Um, and it, it's associated with significant morbidity. The patients are really unwell afterwards and it, it does require some changes to their lives. And also just recovering from surgery, you know, having an excision, having the scar, having this scar tissue, this pain, you know, it's it's not it's not negligible. Um, obviously, surgery is the kind of gold standard for early um, early stage pancreatic tumors, for example. Um, but it's not always appropriate either, because as I said, the patients often present at a more advanced stage, so it's not actually an option anyway. Are the compression kind of devices painful? I'm just thinking of any patients listening. They're not painful. Um, as part of my previous role, I tried out all the commercially available ones on myself to maximum effect. So I, I think I have a good idea of how they feel. Obviously, it's very different for me choosing uh, to um, try them out while I'm at work and getting paid for it. That's a very different story to having to have it for your treatment um, and lying on the bed for, you know, 30 minutes or, you know, even longer um, for different types of treatments like on the MRLINAC. And they're not painful and they shouldn't be. That's the most important thing. They should not be painful. And if there's pain that is, you know, if if we're talking to patients, uh, they should be mentioning that to their radiographers and to say it's from the get go, because we take it to kind of a level that we feel is compressing them enough um, at their planning CT. And that's kind of where we make all the it's like the set the recipe for every day for the treatment so that will follow every day so it's really important to kind of say early on if it's if it's really uncomfortable because we can do other things um to deliver the treatment it's just kind of working out which is the best for you but yeah they're, they're not painful it is uncomfortable it basically changes the way you breathe from uh, being belly breathing to being more chest breathing so um once you get used to it, we normally see kind of after five minutes or so, people people kind of settle into it. And you're lying down anyway, so your kind of breathing amplitude reduces a little bit anyway. So, yeah, but definitely it should never be painful. You mentioned there an MR LINAC. And for therapeutic radiographers listening, they're all really jealous that you get to <laughs> operate an MR LINAC. Uh, for anyone else out there, they might be like, what on earth is that? Can you talk us through what an MR LINAC is? Uh, yeah, no problem. So a conventional LINAC or a conventional C-arm LINAC is um, what's found in most radiotherapy departments around the world. And it typically uses X-ray based imaging to guide the radiotherapy beam. Um, with an MR LINAC, we have um, a MR scanner, a diagnostic grade or just about diagnostic grade MR scanner integrated with a conventional uh, linear accelerator. It just looks a little bit different um, because of the way that the beam has to work with the um, magnetic field, but it's basically giving us the image quality of MR um, with the ability to deliver radiotherapy. Now, MR is excellent and it does give better image quality in certain cases, um, but it doesn't mean that we're not able to see these things on a conventional LINAC. And I think that's really important because with every new technology, staff, patients, everyone goes, I want that. Obviously everything else is terrible and that's not the case at all. Um, 
MR isn't you know necessarily better than CT for certain things. Um, sometimes imaging lung patients on MR LENAC can be a little bit more tricky just because of the nature of lung tissue. So, you know, it just depends on you know what's available and how how your plan is being developed and you know how you're being laying on the bed with your mobilization devices. Um, but yeah, with the abdomen, the MR LENAC is fantastic because we get to see um, just that little bit more than we would have normally. Um, the way we're using it now is it you know it is really really good to you know with our image contrast but it's the kind of potential for the future i think that's the the biggest thing with mr uh, guided radiotherapy and that's the stuff that's still being um worked out such as you know using functional imaging things like that so good in certain cases um really nice for us in the abdomen but you know still it's still radiotherapy <laughs> Do you use oral contrast on the MRLNAC? Just, um, I know on conventional, say for example, pancreas patients, especially within trials, we would give them oral gastrographin. Yeah, no, we don't actually. Yeah, I, in my um, previous life, we definitely used to use oral contrast for certain difficult cases um, so that we could see the duodenum and, you know, could kind of enter the stomach nicely on imaging. We don't do that on the MRLNAC. We did um, initially start with, I think, our first case we gave some water beforehand um there's no need to give any special contrast just giving water was sufficient i think there were suggestions of using pineapple juice as well as a special contrast agent if needed we were a little bit worried that because of the length of uh, treatment on the mr linac that it would actually kind of be a bit more of a hindrance with things changing and passing through um the digestive tract so what we do is we actually just get patients to fast um and kind of two to four hours before their treatment and that's nil by mouth and you know they can have a sip of water if they need to um and then that's it and that actually gives us the, you know the stability that we need just a bit nervous to be adding in oral contrast and you know it just may in increase the motion when we're actually trying to decrease it with better imaging obviously one of the things that could happen is adaptive radiotherapy can you talk to us about kind of where you see that going with better imaging in the future yeah adaptive radiotherapy uh, we're doing that currently um for our pancreas patients for example um and this is basically we take the we do a kind of standard image registration to make sure that the patient's in the correct position that's again still radiotherapy it's still the same thing and then we deform their uh, planning contours onto the today's uh, anatomy and review that. We can then recontour the anatomy if it's changed significantly. And in the abdomen, we often do this kind of within only around two to three centimeters around the PTV. There's no point kind of going all the way up to the top and bottom if it's not going to affect our um, treatment plan. So we would recontour the organs at risk. Um, within this kind of two to three centimeters, we wouldn't touch the targets. So the image registration at the beginning is to make sure that the target's in the right place and that there's kind of no gross errors. And then we would do all the fine tuning with the organs at risk. And then we can um, re-optimize the plan based on the new anatomy. And so that's you know what we're doing at the moment. And I think having better confidence with our imaging and knowing that what we're seeing is exactly what is there. I think that is kind of part, part and parcel with imaging is making sure that you know, you're seeing something, but is it real? Um, 
it's fantastic. The only thing is if it takes a very long time, especially in the abdomen, things can shift around a little bit. So it can mean that you end up chasing your tail a bit and having to like recontour, re-optimize. So you do have to kind of set a limit. Um, there's plenty of potentials out there and there's plenty of potentials to, you know, work on, you know, adapting with uh, biological information, things like that. But um, yeah, that's still well, well, you know, well under evaluation at the moment. So the recontouring is obviously figuring out the edges of organs at risk or the where we want to treat. Um, you said obviously it can take time. Do you think in the future, you might not know the answer to this, so don't worry, but AI would have any benefits in this kind of situation? Definitely, I think so. I think it's, it's a very manual job. Um, it would need to be significantly better um, than is sometimes you know possible sometimes it's a really big change in anatomy from day to day so um that can be really tricky i think there's definitely the potential i don't you know i'm not an ai expert but i think if there's things like that that can kind of take that time pressure off um then why not it, it means that we can focus on other stuff and, and for the recontouring side and the imaging how i don't know straightforward is it for anyone working within the team to train up for that or is it just imaging specialists? I know every department does things quite differently. Yeah, so we're um, a little specialist team on the MR-LINAC. It's comprised of MR-LINAC-specific radiographers, and then there's some trials radiographers as well. So we sit within the trials team. And it depends on the treatment site. Um, I can't comment for all the other treatment sites because I'm not always in for those ones. But I think there is the possibility of recontouring structures, for example, like the bladder, things like that with, within the competency. I think they do um, a bunch offline, get them reviewed by a clinician and signed off and then do some online supervised and things like that. Kind of pretty standard for what we would do. But I think it's tricky with the recontouring of the organs at risk because it starts changing where we sit and moving, you know, the advanced practice um, kind of ghost. Uh, it just starts changing our role you know, under Irma. So it just, it, it, it gets a little bit tricky. We are looking to start training um, radiographers to do abdominal organ at risk recontouring, but you know, that's a long road. We're just starting it. Um, I'm starting to get this underway for myself uh, because I've contoured so many livers and duodenums at the moment. So I you know I should, I should be all right to do it. Um, so we're kind of starting that process so that I can do it in the first instance, and then we'll kind of start cascading it down from there. But it is, it's a, it's a big change to our kind of paradigm as a radiographer. Normally we're checking and kind of, you know, we have that security that, you know, if we're happy that it's all matching according to everything, then it's fine. But when it starts moving into recontouring, it's a big change in responsibility. It's something that we've discussed quite a lot, actually, um, recently as part of the radiotherapy board, recently at a workforce meeting, um, around that, that scope of practice and the blurring of, of practice. Because obviously, if you're making those kinds of changes, ordinarily you would need the oncologist to come and check and when you have a patient on the bed and getting hold of an oncologist at the time that that patient's receiving treatment can be really really difficult and um, I do wonder whether or not in the future we get to see more of physicists and dosimetrists on set working alongside therapeutic radiographers and having more of a multidisciplinary team that's visible is that something that you've seen as part of your research? Um, we're very lucky on the MR Linac that we are all commingling um, for every patient. There's always physicists around, at least one, if not two, um, 
for any abdomen patients, there'll always be a clinician if not to. So it's it's definitely a big change from your kind of conventional um, radiotherapy treatment delivery where there's you know often just two people. Um, yeah, so it's it's definitely different. So we're quite lucky in that sense. And I think for me, that kind of interdisciplinary working is just going to be more important going forwards. And there is going to be some blurring and, you know, working out where everyone's scope lies. But I think there's that's the only way that we can kind of progress, you know, not working in silos, but just working together. So do you want to tell us a little bit about your PhD? Um, I'm really intrigued because I know a lot of people consider doing PhDs and then realise maybe the work involved or the funding that's needed. Um, and that in itself is is sometimes challenging. Can you talk us about your kind of route into PhD and, and what you're doing now? Yeah, I am. Um... As I say, I kind of got interested in doing a PhD in my last role. I think because I was doing such a research-focused role, I wanted to, maybe it's such a radiographer thing, but I really wanted to formalize my learning and I wanted to be like, I did this, I got this learning. I was learning all these things and I, I was like, where do I put this? Obviously in my CPD folder, but uh, it just didn't feel like enough. It didn't feel like it was, because it was such a kind of change in my thinking and I just wanted something to, you know, define that. I found myself going on findaphd.com and I, I joke about it because people are like, really, is it that, that's where you, and I was like, yeah, I really did. <laughs> um, and yeah, I was really lucky to be able to find this PhD topic and it was one that was already funded by Cancer Research UK under the uh, RADnet funding stream. And it was actually the first PhD within um, this part of RADnet that, at Manchester that's called the Doctoral Academy and it's actually an AHP Doctoral Academy and it's run um, by my supervisor, Dr. Cynthia Eccles, who herself has a PhD and she's a therapeutic radiographer. So it's fantastic that we're starting to kind of have this environment where therapeutic radiographers are not only recognized as the experts in their area that they are, but also have a place that is supportive to the kind of people and the kind of researchers and the kind of you know workers that we are so yeah the PhD was already funded by Cancer Research UK I do need to demonstrate outcomes throughout it so you know as always with all kinds of funding you know it comes with having to demonstrate that you're using it correctly um, and that you are you know driving your research forward there are lots of ways to go about securing PhD funding. I'm not an expert in that, obviously, because I did not do that. But, you know, there's uh, ways through the Society and College of Radiographers. Their doctoral fellowship grant is a fantastic resource for us um, radiographers. There's the NIHR, there's Cancer Research UK initiatives, and there's also individual charities, so like site-specific charities, if you had a potential project in mind. The... the the difference with the two funding routes as well is important to kind of note to people is that I applied to a project that I could read and it was set out and the aims were set out. If you wanted to secure your own funding, you would have to kind of put together your own proposal. And that in itself is, you know, a massive undertaking. I know the NIHR do a bridging um, grant, so you can kind of, you get some money to fill up your NHS uh, post while you work up a proposal and they give you lots of support and it's fantastic so I know one of my colleagues is on at, at the moment here at the Christie um, but it's the kind of two routes not just the two funding routes but the two routes of how you come to a PhD and sometimes it's easier for someone to say oh I like the look of that PhD that looks interesting that project I know the supervisors I'll apply for that versus the kind of the probably longer and harder route of having to put it all together and you know apply for funding yourself there's a, it's a massive undertaking 
Um, but yeah, I think for advice for people who are thinking about even a master's, but you know, also PhD uh, study, find a mentor champion to kind of help and support you. And I think that's that's been amazing. Throughout my career, I've always had someone um, who was able to kind of just be there and just guide me a little bit and just kind of put me forwards for things. I think that's the biggest thing is like, you know, putting you forwards for things and actually showing you that, you know, what is possible of you, even if you don't know it. I didn't think I would ever do, be doing a PhD. Um, I thought it was just for the really clever people with, you know, the pipettes and the labs. Um, and yeah, I think just having someone to show you that you can do it is, is fantastic. And as I say, I was so lucky to have that. But you can find that in your department, but you can also find that nationally and internationally now because there's so many amazing forums, including this podcast, where you can actually talk to people that you wouldn't normally talk to and kind of build that relationship that way. You're very, very modest because the fact that you finished university and highlighted an area of your practice that you needed to study more and decided to do a master's in it, I think actually signifies the type of person you are because physics was not my strong point and I certainly wouldn't have done a master's in it so I think it's your inquisitive mind though isn't it and I think if if you have that tenacity to think actually this isn't working right I need to find the solution Mm -hmm. I think it's those people that definitely excel um at doing PhDs because you are questioning things um more or less on a daily basis and that definitely helps doesn't it Definitely. I mean, thank you for, for those kind words. I think there's also possibly a dark side of some slight, you know, perfectionism and having to try and be better at it, um, which as I, you know, talking about getting older, I've kind of recognized that in myself and, you know, I'm being open and honest here. So, yeah, I think, you know, there's, there's both sides. I don't know why I should have just done something biological, but I'm so glad that I did it. It kind of sometimes it just works the way it's meant to. And, you know, it, I, I couldn't have imagined it going any other way. We can gift you a pipette, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> I will have one one day. <laughs> do you wear a uniform on set or do you wear a lab coat? Oh, I wish I had a lab coat. Oh, I might suggest that. <laughs> My boss is going to be like, not a chance. Um, no, I have uniforms, so sometimes I wear a uniform if I am treating a patient. Um, or otherwise I'll just wear, you know, business, business cash. Um, if I'm hiding in the background, getting my, my numbers and my data. <laughs> Have you found anything through your research so far that you think, oh, wow, I wish, you know, in the future, maybe I can look at that in my postdoctorate or there's obviously other radiographers across the country looking at abdominal compression as well. Do you have a little mini network between yourselves to support each other, like peer support? Yeah, I do. Um, We have a little mini network of um, radiographers working in RADnet sites. So that's been great. And kind of RADnet adjacent sites that are interested in abdominal radiotherapy, abdominal IGRT and also motion management. So that's been really helpful. Again, just about having that support and building those networks. And that's been really helpful because we can bounce ideas off each other. we really recently carried out a survey. Um, So it's just nice to have people that can, you know, work alongside you and also to stop us reinventing the wheel because as you say a lot of people have studied abdominal compression um, and they've been you know really it's been studied since the 90s um, and we still haven't we're still you know there's still things that we need to iron out with it um, and I personally think that it's kind of 
not just abdominal compression, but motion management strategies in general, I, I, I think, and this is part of my PhD, that there's, there's an area of personalization and there's some patient factors at play. What they are, we're still trying to work out because it's, it's looking like, as you would imagine, <laughs> you could have probably saved me a lot of hassle, but um, the patient is really complex and there's a lot of complex processes going on. So it's not as simple as, oh, you know, by sex or by height or by whatever, it's really, really tricky. So yeah, it's great to be able to work with people so that we're not reinventing the wheel and we can actually pull together and push forward. The other thing with um, a lot of motion management studies, a lot of um, abdominal studies, they're often single center. Um, so it's often, you know, we don't have that external validity to uh, that research. So it's nice to have a network that we can actually work together and, you know, we could draft up a study going forwards. I have a, a Word document, very, very long Word document of all my kind of ideas for postdocs. Um, and it kind of varies a lot. Um, I'm really interested in the duodenum <laughs> um, and just, you know, looking at it with regards to radiation induced damage, looking for biomarkers of that and imaging. So that's something that I'm definitely interested in. I'm interested in, you know, the changes to the motion um, during digestion with, you know, diabetes or other um, comorbidities that patients may have, it can change, the, you know, the bowel transit. And I think it would be really interesting to look at this from a radiotherapy perspective. So there's a lot of work that's been done in other, in other areas that, you know, we could apply to radiotherapy. So yeah, I've just so many ideas. <laughs> Do you think with um, the changes in technology, that potentially motion management could be reduced more naturally. I'm thinking about, you know, Leo Cancer Care developing a linear accelerator where you're in an upright position. Do you think that actually, you know, those developments could have an impact as well on motion management? Definitely. I mean, people have been doing different ways of managing motion forever. I've seen papers where uh, they've treated patients prone, lying on their stomachs to kind of reduce the breathing motion that way. Um, some centers provide a small dose of a sedative like lorazepam to kind of reduce your breathing that way. There's so many different ways of doing it. Um, obviously, some a bit more tolerable and easy to do than others. But I think we're kind of at a really big precipice of motion management and it's going to change really, really quickly. And I think we're just we don't even you can't even imagine how quickly it will change. Um, Things like, you know, with our MR Linac, hopefully, you know, in the next kind of couple of years, we'll get their new gating um, software where we can gate based on the MR imaging and deliver, you know, change the, uh, or re-optimize the treatment uh, during delivery partway through. So I think with regards to my research, there's definitely going to be a massive change. Um, I still think that there's still a place for working out which strategy is the best for each patient based on their individual story. And some patients, you know, don't have a lot of motion to begin with. So there may not be any need for us to kind of go in there and make it potentially worse with, with potentially abdominal compression. You know, there's a natural urge to try and fight against it. So, um, yeah, I think I think definitely a lot about personalization but I think we you know the next couple of years will be massive massive difference with the way that we you know have our motion management I don't mean this to sound like an interview question but 
How have you incorporated the patient voice within your research? That did in sound, indeed sound like an interview question. That sounds like one of the aims that would be on your... On your uh, I know. I'm, I'm here to find out if you're going to go to the next step of your funding. <laughs> this is that question. <laughs> Sorry. I know. <laughs> Um, so one of the imaging studies I was a part, I am, I am a part of is, um, you know, had a lot of PPI as part of the, the um, generation of the study. And for a lot of the studies that I am using data from patients do questionnaires, because we're still evaluating the MR Linux, so they do questionnaires on their comfort and their experience and was it noisy and stuff like that. So we're able to take that into account. Um, and obviously all future research will be going through um, a lot of PPI, but so patient public involvement and, you know, incorporating the patient voicing because it's so important to not just, you know, it's very easy to say, just do all these things and you'll make an amazing picture and we'll deliver an amazing plan, but it's not at all doable uh, for your average patient. For example, you know, pancreas patients tend to be a little bit older, a little bit frailer, so it needs to be something that's representative for our patient population. So what's next for you? Obviously, PhD is going on um, and you said the next couple of years are quite exciting for this area of research. What should we look out for? Apart from the pipettes, obviously. <laughs> I will have a lab full of pipettes and I will not know to do with them all. Um, I'm not sure what's next for me. I finish my PhD next year. Um, I will submit my thesis and then do my uh, defense of my thesis shortly after. Um, I'll likely do a postdoctoral fellowship or a postdoc afterwards, which is another fixed term contract. It's kind of similar to the PhD, but you don't have that end um, thesis coming out of it. And it's kind of still to like further develop your skills um, within academia and gain research independence and start kind of growing as a, as a research lead. That's the goal one day. Feels very grown up sitting here now as a PhD student, but I'm sure I'm sure in the next year it'll all come to me. Um, and yeah, ideally for me, it would be working towards a kind of clinical academic type of role um, as a researcher part of the time and then a, potentially a consultant radiographer, for example, the other part of the time. So that would be ideal. The ideal role for me doesn't exist at the moment. So I'm manifesting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we'll manifest with you. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, I would hope to continue my research within this area. I think that would be fantastic. But, you know, we'll, we'll see how it all goes. I think whatever happens, happens. So um, there's still plenty to do in the meantime. So I, I, I'm trying not to think about it too much. <laughs> Amazing. So we're at the end of the podcast episode. They go far too quickly. Um, what top tips would you give to any listeners about any aspect of your career insight into the research you're doing anything at all I think one of my biggest top tips is maintaining creativity and thinking outside the box I'm actually naturally quite a creative person um, maybe hence the the physics difficulties earlier on um, but I think that there's you know there's research for everybody and everybody is important to research and having that creativity and looking at things that you may not expect um, to be useful or reading a paper that's actually for from ophthalmology or whatever and finding that you know you can actually bring it into your practice I think having that creativity 
keeps you open to things that are new and research is not just saying oh this doesn't work let's make it better research is saying what do we not even know so I think that would be the biggest thing for me is just you know finding that inspiration and letting it come from funny places if it needs to um don't reinvent the wheel <laughs> if it's been done use that step up off that and you know progress it further um and yeah look after yourself um you know to be a creative you need to look after yourself everything's exciting in the beginning um but it's really challenging when you kind of in the middle of a process like i am in the phd and it's about kind of sticking with it and knowing why you're doing it amazing top tips thank you so very much um for coming on the podcast it's been amazing and i'm sure anyone listening is enthused about the prospect of getting more involved um involved in not necessarily phd study but definitely research so thank you so thank you all for listening to rad chat your hosts today have been myself joe mcnamara and namanjelka anderson if you're utilizing the podcast for cpd purposes consider the reflective questions posted along with links to the resources and literature that we've discussed to receive your accredited cpd certificate please complete the google form linked with the podcast our next guest to feature will be michael merchant he'll be discussing his role as a medical physicist um, around proton therapy research so thank you all for listening and take care